Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Pop the champagne. October is the most popular month to get married, according to The Knot, the nation's leading wedding marketplace. And the wedding industry sure is on the rebound after over a year of postponed pandemic weddings. That includes increased consumer demand for diamond engagement rings. Will you marry me? Yes. Attention. Here you went to Jared. Here went to Jared. Give her diamonds in a design that captures the comfort found in each other's arms. One more reason K is the number one jewelry store in America. Every kiss begins with K. You found the one. Now find the ring. Visit sales. The diamond store. The diamond engagement ring. How else could two months' salary last forever? A diamond is forever. De Beers. Diamond sales shot up 30 percent from last year. Consumer demand coupled with COVID-19 restrictions led to global diamond shortages. And something else, a more vocal movement calling for a move away from mined diamonds toward so-called ethical or conflict-free diamonds. But it's complicated. For example, where do lab-grown diamonds fit into the picture? And how do millennials who support sustainability navigate potential greenwashing in the jewelry industry? Later in the show, it's arguably the most popular feature in the paper of record, the New York Times wedding announcements. Turns out getting selected for those pages is not about the luck of the draw. There's a new weddings editor, and she has really changed the shape of the pages. I mean, the people that she selected are way more diverse. They're far more diverse um, economically, socially, ethnically. And so the way I knew the announcements and the way that I think we traditionally think about the New York Times wedding announcements has really been turned on its head. Author Kate Doty shares true tales of the Times wedding pages in her book, Mergers and Acquisitions, or Everything I Know About Love, I Learned from the Wedding Pages. But first, joining me remotely, Raquel Alonzo Perez, curator of Harvard University's Mineralogical and Geological Museum. Welcome, Raquel. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me here. Glad to have you. And Craig Rottenberg, president of Long's Jewelers in Boston and vice chair of Jewelers of America's Board of Directors. Hi, Craig. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. I'm glad to have you. And I'm going to start with you because people may have heard that diamond sales had dipped during the pandemic proper. You know, we're still in the ongoing process. But I just wanted to have you underscore that they went back up again quite dramatically. And maybe you can tell us a bit about how much diamond engagement rings and I to some large degree, uh, wedding rings are part of your business. Very important part of our business. It's uh, it's it's a pretty even share across the categories for us with uh, with wedding, which is 
which is wedding rings and engagement rings, as well as traditional jewelry and then timepieces. So it's very, very important to us. Um, and we absolutely did see, while love didn't stop, I think the celebrations were put on hold. And because of that, we saw uh, a pause in engagements and weddings last year that have absolutely surged really in, in the last 12 months since, since really things have become more stable in this pandemic world. So would you say most diamond jewelers have reason to be happy now because the sales, are they back to where they were pre-COVID? Or would you say some people are suggesting it's gone up even higher? Yeah, I think it depends on who you are. And, and it's a small industry and a lot of the retailers talk to each other. So I, I don't think everybody has consistently the same story. But I would say overall, business has bounced back to where it was before the pandemic. And for some folks, and, and we're fortunate as well to be uh, to be seeing some of the best business we've, we've seen in a long time. So let's put Long's in the context because you're a local business, a long a company that's been around for a long time. Um, you took over the company 15 years ago or so. Well, first of all, how does that make a difference and where do you sit in the in the context of what we say, like a Tiffany's or a Cartier or a Zales or a De Beers? Where, where, where are you? Yeah, no, great question. I, this industry is unique that there are major players at the, at the top and, at, and uh, at the bottom of the kind of uh, value and quality chain. So what I mean by that is you have, you've got the Tiffany's of the world, which is an incredible organization, amazing global brand, very, very high end. You can find them in every major city all over the world. And then you have also nationally, you've got this company, Signet, which owns Zales and Kays and Jared's all under one roof where they're more, and it, don't get me wrong, it's a, it's a solid product, it's great value for the money, but it's a lower quality than when you'll find at something like a Tiffany's. And then everything else in the middle tends to be family businesses mm. like Long's. Mm. Uh, and as you mentioned, we've been around 150 years, almost 150 years. Um, and so we're, you know, our goal where we sit is we like to be, uh, we're approachable luxury. So we like to have the quality that approaches Cartier and Tiffany if need be, but we also like to be very approachable, meaning anybody can have any budget to come in our stores. But without exception, we do believe in quality and we believe in setting a very high standard for what people get. So from where you sit, which means you, you have, you've had a long up close and personal interaction with a lot of customers over the years, how have you seen the interest in diamonds and in mine diamonds? We're about to get into different definitions of diamonds in just a second, but in mine diamonds are the ones that most people know about. You go into mine, you get them, you come out, they they get polished and they get sent to jewelers, jewelers buy them and then you buy them. So have you seen slight shifts in interest from mine diamonds to other kinds of diamonds that we're hearing about now, like lab grown diamonds? So, uh, well, diamonds are, are a little bit like the fashion industry. There's a part of it that's absolutely core and stays the same and traditional classic. And people still want to use diamonds more often than any other stone or metal to, to symbolize an engagement and a wedding. Uh, that being said, even over the last you know, 10 plus years, we always see new trends and whether it's the style of the ring, whether it's large diamonds, smaller diamonds, halos, um, e sometimes even colored gemstones like um, sapphires becoming a, uh, a very common way for someone to make an engagement ring instead of diamonds. We've seen those fluctuations. We've seen those fashion and trend shifts and it's just a regular part of the business. Uh, Lab-grown is certainly, Lab-grown's been around for a very long time, I mean, decades and decades and decades, um, mostly used in the commercial space. It's only in the last you know, five years or so that uh, synthetic diamonds, lab-grown diamonds have become much more common and marketed to the jewelry business. So that, that's where we're seeing the shift. 
Okay. So now I'm going to move over to you, Raquel Alonzo Perez of uh, Harvard University's Mineralogical and Geological Museum, because gems are your thing. (laughs) That's what you do. (laughs) You study these collections. And as a matter of uh, your doing the work that you do as a curator, you have gotten very interested in projects about diamonds in South Africa, looking at, for example, mined diamonds and what do they mean versus lab-grown and as we'll we'll start talking later, some other kinds. So uh, same question to you. How have you seen shifts in interest in diamonds? Of course, uh, Craig would see from his vantage point, as he mentioned, the change in interest in styles. Uh, but I wonder if, if you can talk about interest in the gyms themselves as what you've seen from where you are. I see more on the fashion. When I go to shows, I can tell exactly what fashion is going within among jewelers, uh, gem collectors dealers, but not necessarily within what I do, which is either more research or collections. I don't see that fashion, but I have seen the the increased talks about synthetic diamonds and sustainable and ethics. That I have seen, but not necessarily, yes, focus on the trends. As someone who studies all kinds of gems, where do diamonds sit on the spectrum of most important, most valuable, most you know, uh, something outstanding about the gym? (laughs) Diamonds are exceptionally unique because of their characteristics. And like Craig was mentioning, lab-grown diamonds have been on the industry for decades because the reason we start producing them synthetically is for material purposes. The amount of information that a diamond can hold is better than any silica chip. They Mm. think they're still expensive. So then that's why we start producing synthetic diamonds diamonds because we needed them. And then kind of what that triggers is that the leftovers will go into the jewelry industry. But my research is focusing on understanding how these amazing minerals form deep into the earth because it's our only window to those in the earth to understand earth processes. And just to underscore what your research means when you get over to the commercial side, for something that is quite valuable and hard to find and you're spending a lot of energy trying to figure out how, as you say, this amazing uh, gems are formed, that's where the value is. So that's why they end up being so quite so expensive because the process by which they come to be is really quite interesting. It is. It's like any, it's a commodity too. When you think about gold, any precious metal, platinum, gems, diamonds, any ore, iron, tin, copper, kind of you name it. It's it's an element, it's a material that we need for our daily lives. So yes, synthetic diamonds is becoming more of a trend because we can produce them now before we didn't have the capabilities of doing it. Uh, but diamonds is like any other material we need it for for our existence. And natural ones are uh, you you can understand in some ways it, when you start understanding what lab grown diamonds are all about, you have a better appreciation of, of how valuable a naturally produced diamond, why it's so valuable, because you, you know what it takes to create something synthetically. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I yeah. agree. And the implications around mining for natural diamonds for the good. I think it's very important to understand that a mine can sustain a village of 20,000 people in South Africa. This is where I'm going. So you've just transitioned for <laughs> me. 
Um, I was mm-hmm. interested in the way that uh, a website I stumbled across in prepping for this conversation, Knowledge Warden UPenn, pointed out that the four C's are very well associated with natural diamonds, you know, cut and clarity and uh, on the other pieces. But now there's some there's an O for origin, and that's mm-hmm. become extremely important, particularly for consumers. Where did the gem come from? Was it mined? Was it created in a lab? How else is it being produced, and how did it get to me? And and there are a lot of ethical questions surrounding that, some of which, by the way, many people had never considered. But there was a great amount of uh, more attention and discussion which uh, came after Leonardo DiCaprio's movie Blood Diamond in 2006. Let me play a clip from the movie and we can talk on the other side. So this is the 2006 film Blood Diamond starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Connelly. Let me tell you something. You sell blood diamonds too. Really? Yeah. Tell me, how is that? Who do you think buys the stones that I bring out? Dreamy American girls who all want a storybook wedding and a big shiny rock. It's like the ones they see in the advertisements of your politically correct magazine. So please, don't come here and make judgments on me, all right? I provide a service. The world wants what we have, and they want it cheap. We're in business together. Get over yourself, darling. So to follow up what you were saying, uh, Raquel, where the diamond comes from is important to a lot of consumers now. And some are concerned that what is known as, quote, blood diamonds came from the blood and literal, you know, sweat of miners who were treated horribly, bad conditions, not paid. So that's the context by which there has been kind of a movement against mined diamonds, which we would also understand to be naturally produced diamonds. But your point, as you just said, is there's ways to look at this across the board and you want to have a wider context to consider it. Yes, 100%. I will also turn it around. We know about blood diamonds. Do we know about mining for gold? Artisanal gold mining produced the worst mercury pollution that we ever have known before in our ecosystem. We don't talk about gold and other precious metal that are also used on the industry. So I would turn it around that now we are heavily focused. So we focus in 2000. I was an incredible awareness that we needed as a society that we need to put some policies and practice in places like the Kimberley process, which still is struggling. But it was something to at least recognize that there are conflict minerals resources, conflict, natural resources, because I would broaden it. It's not just diamonds. It's anything that we are mining. Mm. We have to be more aware of how are those resources being mined and what what are the procedures put in place to do it ethically. And ethically is not just environmentally, climate change, of course, number one, but it's also ethically at the level of human rights. So it's good that study with a movie and Leonardo DiCaprio and Blood Diamonds, but it's a broader context. It's not just gems. And then like the other side, which I mentioned, I have been there and I have seen it, how these mines are hugely sustainable. They use the same water to mine. It's the same water. They get recycled all over again. They have power plants to supply the whole energy. And then on top of it, a whole community of 20,000 people at the Finch mine is surviving from that village, from that mine in diamonds. Now, if someone comes and tell me that's not sustainable, <laughs> I don't know what is sustainable then. Mm-hmm. Can I just add, 
Yeah, that I think the the benefit to the industry of the the movie Blood Diamond and a lot of other media attention that's been had had been shined on the condition on a lot of these minds is that there's incredible movement towards transparency now. And you had mentioned, you know, how important origin is, and I I don't think origin would have been as uh, important if we hadn't had this the spotlight shine on the the challenging parts of of the industry and the dark parts of the industry. I think to Raquel's point. There's a lot more good, but there's there's some darkness that needed some light, and this uh, a lot of what's happening now is just more and more transparency, which is healthy. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Raquel Alonzo Perez, curator of Harvard University's Mineralogical and Geological Museum, and Craig Roddenberg, president of Long's Jewelers. It's peak wedding season, and we're discussing all things diamonds. Back to you, Craig. Uh, why don't you discuss what the Kimberly process is, which is a since people are focused on where do the diamonds come from, this is a tool by which both jewelers like yourself and consumers can get some answers. The Kimberly Process, it's a global organization, a global standard where everyone throughout the supply chain from miners to manufacturers to retail all the way through to consumers um, is part of an ethical pledge to make sure that conditions in the mines are are fair and ethical, uh, that workers are treated well, that we're not funding um, warlords and crime. Uh, so it's basically a, a process that was put in place to make sure that there's more transparency and that when we work with our, as a retailer, when we buy from manufacturers, they need to provide us with a Kimberly process statement saying we adhere to uh, all the guidelines and similar with the with them buying from the mine. So all the way up and down the supply chain, we're all part of this process to make sure that we're putting process in place that, that's absolutely ethical. As Raquel mentioned, it's it's not perfect. It's a, it's actually a work in progress, and that, which goes back to this whole idea of um, pushing for origin. There's institutions now like the, the, the lab, Gemological Institute of America, GIA. They are able to now track diamonds based on their origin so that there's just a lot more of that transparency beyond just the Kimberly process. I, I look at the Kimberly process as just a starting point. So do you find, um, because some people say part of the movement is out there, but in practice, a lot of people don't come in and ask about it. But I'm wondering, at Long's, do you have customers asking about the origin of the diamonds? Yeah. So it's it's part of our customer education process to make sure people know that diamonds are mined ethically now. And, you know, we we only partake in, in, in that part of a supply chain that that has that uh, transparency. Um, I would say customers are asking for it more and more. It's certainly not everybody, but it, it's because I think some people just assume a, a reputable retailer is already following the right guidelines out there. But we are certainly hearing it more and more. And just for, in case people are, you know, these are all new terms for people, sometimes you hear blood diamond and conflict-free diamonds as well. So the conflict-free means that you can trace the origin of the diamond, and it is coming from someplace where they are not using the sale of those diamonds to promote war or other kinds of harms on the, on the community. Now, here's what makes it more complicated. We started off also talking about the lab-grown diamonds, which are a whole other thing. As we, if you both have discussed, they've been around for a while, they've been created for other uses, and now customers are looking at them. First of all, explain to me why this isn't a cubic zirconia. I mean, isn't that a synthetic? <laughs> I'm not, I'm unclear about what the difference is. So I'll give that to you, Craig. What's the difference? <laughs> 
so there's a, a synthetic diamond, a lab-grown diamond is is the same. And actually, Raquel can answer this better than I can. So please correct me. It it is chemically, and it, it's the same material. It is actually a, it is a diamond um, in terms of the ingredients that make it up. Um, so where a cubic zirconium is is it's like plastic versus glass. They're two entirely different materials. Okay. Cubic zirconium is not diamond, but the difference is a natural diamond is rare, is mined from the earth, is created by Mother Nature over millions of years in heat and pressure, where a lab grow diamond is created in a lab in a very short period of time. They basically try to replicate Mother Nature in a short period of time, with the end result being not identical, but very, very, very similar. So as I understand it, Raquel, a synthetic diamond can be made for as little as a third of, of a natural diamond, which obviously would be of interest to a lot of people. And here's another statistic I discovered that they expect by 2030 that lab-grown diamonds will reach 10% share of the global diamond market. Now, before we get too far down that piece of it, there's an issue. The people who are looking for lab-grown diamonds have, some of them are hoping to avoid blood diamonds. They just don't want to get get into that. But others are looking for sustainability, meaning you're not placing more harm, you're not creating more climate issues as a result of creating this, except, Raquel, as you've explained, that's not the case with lab-grown diamonds. They use a lot of energy. They do. The amount of CO2 you need to produce these diamonds is huge. So it's huge machines. So it's just to get the machines because it's all made of these high-tech materials, then the amount of water, the amount of energy. So they are not, <laughs> technically, they are not sustainable. You're just, just producing and consuming something to create something. And you kind of said the, the thing with, with crack between a, a cubic zirconia and a lab synthetic diamond. They are both the same in the sense that they are both produced synthetically. One is just produced with atoms of carbon, and the other one is produced with atoms of zirconium and oxides. But you are getting the same properties from both of them in principle. So as a, as a person that I will buy a diamond, why would I go for a lab synthetic diamond and not a cubic zirconia if in principle no one could tell the difference? It's just kind of mentally you think you are doing something good, but you will be even doing something better if you will buy cubic zirconia. <laughs> I never thought of that. <laughs> because because cubic zirconia does not take as much energy as as a lab grown diamond. Exactly, it's much okay. cheaper. It's just it's just zircon and oxide. Where for for a synthetic diamond, you need carbon, and the process to get that carbon on a CVD is is tremendous. The amount of energy. So just to be clear, I, I uh, 2019 report says these lab-grown diamonds can take up to three times the greenhouse emissions than mined diamonds. So wh where do you, where is the consumer who is looking for the quote ethical diamonds or just wanting to be feeling like I'm doing something good, as you said, I I want to move away from harming anyone or any community, but just because I want to have something beautiful on my hand. Where do you go if you're that consumer? So, so th there's a few <laughs> there's a few options out there. So no, I, and listen, the, the the marketers behind the lab grown have done an unbelievable job of of packaging it as green. Where again, I think there's some truth in what they're saying, but there's also a lot of spin, and and that's okay. I mean, I think there's a there's there's a place in the world for synthetic diamonds, just as there's a place for with with real diamonds. In terms of the alternatives, th this would be my recommendation, and it's, and this is independent of someone coming to Longs or going to any jewelry store. Is one every jewelry out there, every jewelry store out there right now, online, in person, 
should certify that they're selling conflict-free, which means that they put the work in to make sure that the diamonds they secure and make available to their customers, if natural, are absolutely clean. And that I think is is just the, that, that's table stakes now. And that's what we do. And that's what I think most uh, integrity retailers across the country are doing, again, online or offline. That's number one. Uh, number two is you can you can choose something other than a diamond. You can choose a different gemstone. Uh, a lot of people do that or a gold ring or uh, Raquel might have an issue with gold. Maybe it's platinum or maybe it's something else. <laughs> um, but it, you know, it doesn't have to be no, it's a diamond. But you know, for us, diamonds are still traditional in in our culture of symbolizing that that commitment, that engagement, that wedding. Um, the last thing I would recommend is if someone really wants to be green is and, and still wants a diamond, you can actually buy a pre-owned diamond. So meaning this it's, it's recycling. It's it's secondhand. This mm-hmm. is a crass way of saying it, but it's really a way to say. There's a diamond out there that has already been through all this. I want to give it new life because there's no extra cost to the environment for us. There's no digging. There's no any of this stuff. Um, And then one more thing I forgot to add was, uh, and this goes back to Raquel's, there are some diamond companies that are absolutely focused on doing good. And I'll give you an example. There's a a brand called Kalahari Diamonds where they do enormous beneficial things in Botswana where the mines are, and they've invested in education and healthcare. And, and so there are companies that have, have proven, not just said the words, but proven, you know, dug wells for, for villages so that people don't have to, to, to walk miles to get water. There, there are companies out there that have proven we will mine them ethically and we are committed to sustaining a community, bringing people up, building a sustainable industry. And so I think that that's a really interesting new approach for some of these diamond brands out there, as long as it's authentic. And that's the hard part. And I would underscore that I, Meghan Markle, I believe, is a customer of Kalahari. Um, just if that means oh, that's something, right. yeah. something very good. Um, she, yes. yes, she wants to switch also brings me to the whole controversy around Beyonce and the Tiffany campaign was they had her wearing an ancient, very, very expensive diamond, a Tiffany diamond yellow. It's, you know, only four people have worn it. She's the first black woman to do it. And it was a big deal they made out of it. Had a huge, they have a huge campaign going. And then people just, you know, went crazy saying, how dare you wear this? You know, this is a blood diamond and this is horrible. And, and it goes so against everything that you stand for. So that was, you know, that's why if people were wondering, what is that all about? That's what it's all about. The, the conversation that we're having now about trying to find a diamond that is ethically sourced and or deciding I don't want to be in that at all. And I now understand that the lab grown ones are not sustainable. So I might do something else, as Craig has suggested, which also brings me to the question of do the colored diamonds, are they the same value as a white diamond? Yeah. So um, it's so the the key is our colored gemstones. There are certain colors, as long as they are natural, mm-hmm. are incredibly valuable. So a blue diamond, a red diamond, certain kinds of yellow diamonds. If they're natural, meaning they are come from the earth and they have not been treated in any way, those are uh, much, much, much more valuable than uh, what we see as a traditional white diamond because of the rarity. It's just okay. it's just an incredible combination of events that lead to that. Um, and again, Raquel can talk more about how it happens. I can talk more about the value. Um, however, there are companies that treat diamonds using a different process that gives them incredibly bright colors. The, the value of those is, is significantly less than a natural white diamond. Okay. So you had played some information from you know, Zales and Kays. Mm-hmm. You know, they have chocolate diamonds and you know, they have all these great names for them. Those are substantially less valuable because they are less rare and they're treated. They're not naturally that beautiful. So that, that's how that's, that plays out. 
So, Raquel, what do you think, um, as more conversation is being had, uh, more focused on origin of diamonds, do you think, uh, at the beginning of this conversation, Craig was saying he hadn't seen quite a shift, do you think that we're going to have more conversations about this, and particularly around now lab-grown diamonds, which, as people have come to understand, that they're not as sustainable as maybe they thought? Uh, yes, with origin, it's a little bit complicated because the problem with any diamonds or any gemstone, those gems are going to carry on for years and years and years. So even if you know the origin from the beginning, that might get lost throughout the way. I know more about the color gemstones, for example, emeralds. We know they were formed 500 million years ago in the same area within Madagascar, South Africa, Zambia. If you look at the chemistry of those emeralds, you cannot tell them apart. It's very, very difficult. So the origin geographically, it was the same because they were produced at the same time. And still there are some chemical traces that you can use to distinguish. Now with diamonds, it's extremely difficult because diamonds only have carbon, only has carbon and some minor amounts of other elements like boron. And it's very difficult to really trace origin. So. The best way is really to get to the mines, and that's what a little bit GIA is doing. It's really working with the mines to create some traceability throughout the process from the mine to the to the to us who we buy the, the material. So yeah, traceability of origin of diamonds is extremely difficult, and I don't know how really that's going to be possible. So it's going back to what also Craig said: is, is transparency and and making it sure the consumer or we know where the diamond came from. And I think it's not that. Also, we mentioned that they are not fully sustainable. These synthetic diamonds. I think right now they are not. The more that probably get produced, it will be a point where they are cheaper and then it's so easy to make them because we have the technology to make them. Right now, the technology is still using a huge amount of energy and materials. And it's going to, I believe it's going to happen the same like when emeralds, synthetic emeralds came into the market in the 60s. They were really cheap. They were really difficult to make. And it was like, wow, synthetic emeralds, no one is going to go for a natural gem. But it was not the case. No one wants any more uh, synthetic emeralds. So it was a trend that we saw. And then once we proficient the technique to make them, no one wants them anymore. That's who we are, I guess. Yeah. Well, it seems to me that where we are is that, as anyone should be, if you're purchasing a diamond, <laughs> you have to be very thoughtful about your purchase mm -hmm. and uh, see mm -hmm. if it uh, lines up with where you are. Um, and the more information, the better, which has always been the case at any kind of valuable gemstone. So that's where we are. And I think these millennials who are really pushing the movement for sustainability are going to have to, you know, take a moment to really think of and weigh the balance between how something is created, if you're trying to get to sustainability, and how something is created naturally and what are the consequences of that. So I think that's where we are. Definitely. Craig, can I get your sign off? <laughs> well, well, well said. No, you're absolutely right. Yes. I think customers need to be thoughtful. And, you know, we're lucky to be here in New England where I think we have a lot of educated and thoughtful people who, uh, you know, want to make the right choice. And we, and we love that. We love uh, giving people the full education, transparency, and let them decide what makes sense for them, you know, given where the world is right now. Craig, I also love, sorry, that what you said about if you want to be sustainable, then buy something that has been already wear before. Yeah, yeah. I we mean, have a lot of customers doing that. We have yes. a lot of customers coming in and asking for 
do you have a, you know, get, I'd, I'd buy someone else's ring. That's, you know, that there's a lot of times you know, people will inherit their grandparents' rings. They'll, mm -hmm. they'll sell them back to jewelry stores like us where we repurpose them and, and, and sell them as previously owned diamonds or put them in an antique ring. Um, yeah. But I'm glad, I'm glad that resonated with you. Thank you. Well, for one thing, we do know that recycling is, is very high on the list of the millennial consumer. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, both of you, for having a conversation with me about this. And um, I'll be very interested to see where this goes in the next couple of years. Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Raquel Alonzo Perez is curator of Harvard University's Mineralogical and Geological Museum. Craig Roddenberg is president of Long's Jewelers in Boston and vice chair of Jewelers of America's Board of Directors. Coming up, few would dispute that the New York Times has elevated the age-old tradition of the wedding announcement to an important status symbol. Why, in these times, when many other social traditions have gone the way of the polar ice cap, do the announcements still draw enthusiastic readers? Author Kate Doty shares her insider's view in her book, Mergers and Acquisitions, or Everything I Know About Love, I Learned from the Wedding Pages. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. A kiss may be grand, but it won't pay the rental on your humble flat, or help you at the automat mill. Grow cold as girls grow old, and we all lose our charms in the end. But square cut or pear shape, these rocks don't lose their.